There was a tradition of mysticism in ancient Israel that included rich, almost psychedelic visionary experiences. Isaiah's vision of God on the throne included fiery angelic creatures and coals of fire. Ezekiel's vision of God on a mobile throne with wheels within wheels and multiple animal-like faces is even stranger. God as king was often described as sitting on a throne. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies itself is a throne on which God is invisibly seated between the outstretched wings of two facing angels. So they call this ancient mystical practice throne mysticism. The practice included silent meditation or contemplative prayer. John's Gospel is the most mystical of our four canonical Gospels. It is quite different in many ways from the others. Only in John's does Jesus make long speeches and speaks of the mystical unity of himself with God, the Father, the Spirit, and the disciples. John embellished the Jesus stories to reflect the growing faith of his Christian community in the second century. He loved metaphor, wordplay, and symbolism. If you're watching a film in which it starts to rain, you know that something bad is happening to the characters. Rain is a symbol. Similarly, in John's Gospel, if it's dark, then someone is in the dark and desperately needs enlightenment. That is the case with the character Nicodemus, whom John describes as coming to see Jesus at night. John loves to write characters that make the mistake of taking Jesus' words literally when he mean, means them figuratively. The woman at the well thinks he's talking about literal water when he says he can give living water. Jesus says that he will rebuild the temple in three days after it is destroyed, speaking of his body as a temple, but they take him literally and argue that the temple's been under construction for 46 years. So Nicodemus falls into the same mistake. Jesus speaks about spiritual birth but Nicodemus thinks he means literally being born all over again. I don't think anyone would be that dense, but I believe Nicodemus, like many of the characters in John's Gospel, are fictional. Nicodemus stands for a way of thinking about God and the spiritual life that is cluelessly in the dark. In this story, Jesus attempts to enlighten him. There is a conundrum about religion and religious people that Nicodemus illustrates. It is possible, maybe even likely, to be active in a religion without being transformed by it. In fact, as Richard Rohr likes to point out, religion at immature levels can impede transformation. If people use religious acts, even prayer, as a way of bolstering their egos by thinking their actions make them good or even better than others, they remain spiritually immature. Being in religious leadership, as Nicodemus is, can even be more a greater obstacle to spiritual growth because of the way being in leadership strokes the ego. Here's the problem. When religion is reduced to a set of moral rules or practices to perform, plus a set of ideas to believe in, no transformation of the ego happens. Keeping moral rules and performing rituals have their place, but they do nothing to transform the ego. Believing in the right doctrines does not transform the ego. 
If attending church is only a duty to be performed, the positive benefits of it dissipate at the door. Every religion is full of unenlightened Nicodemuses that have never been reborn spiritually. Just look at how easy it is to get religious people whipped up into a violent mob. If you think Christians or even Reformed people like us are an exception, read some church history. We are not. Protestants and Catholics burned each other's churches to the ground in post-Reformation conflicts. It was ugly. The problem is the human ego. We are all born as our flesh and blood selves. This comes with all kinds of complications. We start life totally egocentric. As infants, we cried when we needed food and expected to receive it. As children, we experienced frustration and failure. People disappointed us. Even the perfect parent could not always meet every need, nor could she prevent nightmares or school bullies. So we learned strategies to defend ourselves from hurt. These defense strategies became our personalities. At some level, they worked for us, but they also deceived us because we came to believe that they are our essential selves. I am my personality. But that's not true. In your essence, you are a beloved child of God. And so is everyone else. And understanding that insight is like a rebirth. It changes everything. It is transformative. Our essential belovedness is an insight common to mystics who, by the practice of meditation, have been able to deconstruct their ego fixations. In this text from John's Gospel, we learn that God, according to Jesus, loves the world so much that he wants everyone in it to experience that kind of transformation. That is salvation. John also calls it eternal life. Most people think eternal life means heaven. It does include life beyond this world, but eternal life is meant to be a quality of life that starts now. John's Gospel says that eternal life is to know Jesus, to be saved by Jesus. Being saved means being rescued from the self-absorbed life, the ego-obsessed life, the self-focused life. Living that kind of ego-based life is best described as perishing. This is not to be judgmental. Jesus did not come to condemn us for being ego-driven, but to save us from perishing that way. He came to save us from all of the conflicts and catastrophes that accompany an ego-driven life. There's an odd story that Jesus alludes to in his conversation with Nicodemus. It's from Numbers in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew people are in the wilderness. Poisonous snakes are attacking them. People are dying. So Moses makes a bronze pole with a serpent on it. When the people look at it, they're saved from the venomous bites Looking at what is killing you somehow heals you. Looking at our little defensive egos and understanding them as little defensive egos sets us free from their power over us. But it often requires the mystical practice of meditation over time to figure this out. John uses that allusion to that story of the serpent on a pole as a foreshadowing of Jesus' being lifted up on a cross. For John, Jesus is enthroned, not in a temple, 
but on that cross. That cross moment becomes, in John's gospel, Jesus' moment of glorification. Why? Because Jesus was so non-ego-centered, he would rather die than kill. He accepted suffering and sacrifice because he was, as theologians said, completely a man for others. That is how Jesus can be, as John's Gospel reports him saying he is, the light of the world, the door, the way, the truth, the life. The Jesus-shaped life is a life born again, born anew, born from above. All of those are implied in the original meaning of being born again because it is life in the Spirit. The Spirit, like the wind, is invisible, but known by its effects. The effect of the Spirit is spiritual transformation from selfishness to selflessness. Our challenge is to put ourselves in this story in Nicodemus's shoes. We are religious people, but we know that there is more than moral rules and rituals. We are invited to know in our bones that we are beloved children of God who made us for connection. We are invited to know ourselves as a beloved community on a mission of compassion. We are invited to be mystics whose practices help us to be like Jesus, people for others.